Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. This is one of those rare days where there was, uh, literally, there were so many different stories, so many different angles to consider that uh, I was tempted to just go ahead and plug in a best of program and sit here and do show prep for the rest of the day. I know it's kind of a self-defeating thing to do, but uh, man, there's a lot going on. And, and I'm, I'm even now just, okay, shall we roll the dice and see where it all leads? Let's, uh, let's start with one of the, uh, one of the more whoa moments from yesterday. I saw some of the uh, footage out of the Bahamas where Hurricane Dorian, wow, sat there parked for almost 24 hours over the Bahamas, just making life miserable for those folks. Winds were, I believe, pretty sustained around 160 to 185 miles an hour. Anyway, the, the hurricane sat there for for hours, just barely moving. And the, the pictures coming out of uh, Bahamas, uh, particularly, what is it called? Is it Grand Bahama Island? Anyway, it's ugly. There's a few reinforced buildings that look to be standing, but everything that isn't knocked down uh, pretty much looks to be underwater. I mean, it is just, it's, it's shocking. Those poor people. I mean, that, that is, that is not going to be something that's going to be easy to come back from. Um, and of course, you know, there's still concern about where the hurricane seems to be headed along the American East coast, you know, but oof, the, the Bahamas took a definite hit and, and I'm, I, I point this out not to, I'm not trying to needle the, the climate change people in any way, but um, I just, I think it bears mentioning every time we start thinking, well, you know, humanity has got this dominance over the uh, planet and that's why we've got to fix everything here. You know, um, truth be told, no matter what we assert about mankind's dominance over this planet, nature always has the final say. And I don't think there's, there's any way that we are going to trump pun intended you know, uh, what, what nature can dish out, whether it be in the form of a hurricane, a tornado, earthquake, volcano. The forces of nature are, are almost incomprehensibly powerful. And the, the devastation in the Bahamas is very, very sobering. At the very least, I mean, look, you should hopefully be, re- be remembering these people in your prayers. If you can send money or if you can send, you know, other, other forms of aid, by all means, donate. But I think at the very least, it would be a good idea for for anybody who sees these things to stop and reflect for a moment and just feel some gratitude that uh, that that's not something you have to carry on your shoulders today. I know it sounds like a total dodge. Well, it sucks to be you, but uh, I'm going to go on with my problems, my first world problems. All I know is I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I slept in a warm bed last night and that uh whew, I'm not scrambling, trying to find, you know, clean water to drink or food to eat or wondering what are we going to do without any electricity for however long. I mean, this looks like it it could take a while. I guess we shall see. 
All right. Other things going on here. I guess I'm going to start with one here that uh, I know was on a lot of people's minds. Walmart announced yesterday. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to ban open carry in our stores. We're also going to stop selling certain kinds of ammunition. Now, I don't know what practical effect they're hoping to have. Uh, it sounds to me like a like a corporate decision. Maybe it's I I don't know. I feel bad for even suggesting this because it, it's going to sound like I'm I'm judging them. But it's it sounds like, you know, the, the virtue signaling. Oh, look, we're we're aware and we we uh, we're we're against mass shootings, too. So here's what we're going to do. It's got some people pretty, uh, pretty bent out of shape. And, I, and I'm not sure exactly why within the, the Second Amendment community or within the people who take seriously the right to keep and bear arms, it, this, this has the tendency to anger as much as it does. Now, maybe I'm going to sound condescending when I say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. You should not be concerned about changes in policy like this. Because hopefully you are the kind of person who already is practiced and trained and knows how to carry, preferably concealed. Out of sight, out of mind. My point being, there is no such thing as a gun-free zone if you are a properly armed and trained individual. But I'm saying this with the understanding that uh, you get good training. The very first thing you're going to learn is that you are the weapon. Your mindset, your awareness, your ability to recognize and respond to potential danger. And that doesn't always mean, by the way, you know, grabbing a gun and running towards it. That means just recognizing, hey, that could be a problem and, you know, avoiding it wherever possible. That's the weapon. Whatever firearm you have or whatever, you know, knife you may carry or pepper spray or whatever, those are just tools. But the bottom line is, uh, if it, because Walmart wants to do this, it's not a big deal. In fact, uh, it's kind of fortunate. Well, we're not going to sell certain kinds of ammo now. That's great. Because you know who does sell all these kinds of ammo? That would be our friends at Ammo.com, who we're very proud to have as a sponsor here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Anyway, they... Uh, they have everything you could possibly need. And they're not going to complain because they don't care whether you're open carrying or, you know, concealed carrying because you can order it right from your desktop and right to your home, right to your doorstep. Now, I've told you before, Ammo.com also, uh, in addition to handgun, rimfire, rifle, shotgun ammo, they have gear. They have bulk ammo, which, by the way, is really a great way to buy it. I, I don't know how to say this without sounding like I'm doing a little bit of scaremongering, but um, ammo prices right now are probably the lowest that I have seen in about 12 years. I don't think I've seen prices this affordable and supplies as, as plentiful since before Barack Obama was elected. So I'm about 2007 is, is what I'm hearkening back to. And my point here is, these things come and go in waves. I think if if some of the uh, partisan unrest that you have seen for the last, oh, I don't know, three years is any indication, next year could be kind of volatile. And some of the panic that is likely to set in as the election approaches, particularly if the polls, you know, if if polls keep saying, well, we, we show Trump is trailing by 12 points behind, you know, Joe Biden or whomever, Elizabeth Warren, what, whatever. 
it's going to stoke some people's fears and they're going to want to start stocking up all at once. You should have been doing it all along. You should be doing it right now while there is opportunity and while the, the demand is not as great. I'm not telling you you're dumb, okay? Please don't don't feel like I'm I'm, you know, berating you for this. I'm just saying the time to act is when 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 the waters are calm and, you know, people aren't running around going, "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what what can we do?" And I'm not saying for sure that I know that's going to happen. I'm just saying the likelihood of it happening closer to the election or in the immediate aftermath of the election, just play along with me for a moment. Heaven forbid. Trump loses his bid for re-election. Do you not think you will see panic buying on an unprecedented scale? Not just guns, but ammo and gear, magazines and all this stuff. I don't know. You know, Congress apparently is getting ready to vote on some gun control initiatives. They won't go into effect immediately, but as soon as they pass something, it's likely the panic is going to kick in. This is the time to be methodically putting away, you know, some some ammo for a rainy day. It's not going to lose value. There'll always be somebody who'd be willing to trade or pay for it. Go to ammo.com. Check them out. When you go to check out, after you find what you want, make sure you use the little drop-down menu and say, "Hey, these freedom-loving groups I would like to support. You can have, I think there's like 16 of them to choose from, but uh, Loving Liberty is among them. They'll donate 1% of your purchase to that group. So we would appreciate it. They would appreciate it. And I'm going to share with you an article that uh, that came up. Actually, we're going to be going to break here in a moment. But this is a very interesting article about how if it bleeds, it leads. How American media perpetuates and profits from mass shootings. Now, that may sound like a really harsh thing to say. Wait a minute. You're saying the media actually benefits or it spins this to its benefit? And that's exactly what's being said. I'll share this with you, and uh, you can you can make your own decisions. I'll also have a link in the show notes when I put this up for podcast a little bit later on today. But I hope you'll check it out. And we will take a quick break and be back on Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. Time to share an article with you from Ammo.com. If it bleeds, it leads. How the American media perpetuates and profits from mass shootings. Starts with a quote from Dr. Park Dietz, forensic psychologist on how to stop mass shootings. Here's what he says. Dr. Dietz says, I have repeatedly told CNN and other media the following. Uh, the following. If you don't want to propagate more mass murders... Don't start the story with sirens blaring. Don't have photos of the killer. Don't make it 24-7 coverage. Do everything you can not to make the body count the lead story. Localize the story to the the affected community and make it as boring as possible in every other market. 
This is from his article on how to stop mass shootings. So the article says video games, 4chan, toxic masculinity. These are just a few of the media's favorite folk devils when it comes to assigning blame for mass shootings in America. However, there's a startling bit of evidence that how the media covers these tragedies makes them culpable in perpetuating future ones. Now, that might sound like an outlandish claim, but it's supported by evidence from no less an authority than the, the National Institutes of Health. It's a well, it's a it's related rather to a well-established phenomenon of copycat suicides, also known as the Werther effect. The Werther effect just shows that uh, suicides increase immediately after a suicide story has been publicized in newspapers in Britain and the United States. Apparently, the study took place um, 1947 to 1968. The more publicity devoted to a suicide story, the larger the rise in suicides thereafter. And the way you get around uh, making more copycats is you just keep it within the community that's affected and uh, don't sensationalize it. Other countries' medias have taken steps to minimize what's called the Werther effect. Through self-imposed industry standards on suicide reporting, many of these standards have parallels with the coverage of mass shootings. The American media currently has no industry standard practices for how to cover either suicides or mass shootings, which often go hand in hand. However, one can easily see the difference between how mass shootings and suicides are covered. Whereas suicides are treated as somber tragedies, mass shootings often have the sensationalism turned up to 11. There's a detailed discussion of the shooter's life story, motives, and methods. Strong evidence suggests that this both encourages and instructs potential mass shooters. Statistically speaking, mass shootings represent a tiny portion of all deaths in the United States. Take this for an example. 2017 was the deadliest year for mass shootings in America. A total of 117 people killed. Now, just to put this in context, 102 people die from automobile accidents every day, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Institute. Isn't that something? We should ban cars, maybe, right? Despite the low frequency of these tragedies, the article says the media pays outsized attention to them for self-serving reasons, which are both political and economic. There's a demonstrated anti-gun agenda among America's media. And there's the ongoing shift in the media's business model to attention-based revenue that results in ever more sensational news coverage and clickbait headlines. By the way, the proof of this can be seen with every newscast that starts with breaking news. Our top story this hour, breaking news, breaking, breaking, breaking. That used to actually be reserved for things that were important. Now it's just, that's the, the cue to people. Get excited, start cheering, start clapping, stand up. The article says the lurid attention to mass shootings is profitable for America's press. It's cable news networks and social media companies despite the consequences encapsulated by the Werther effect. So a look at the role that the, the American media plays in perpetu- perpetuating these rampage killers is in order. First of all, we'll uh, dive a little bit more into the Werther effect. Ask yourself, can suicides be contagious? The answer is some studies say yes. It's clinically known as the Werther effect after Goethe's Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. This is a particularly important topic in the era of the so-called mass shooter and the phenomenon of suicide by cop. 
Researchers at Northeastern Illinois University and Arizona State University found that as many as 20 to 30 percent of all mass shootings are copycat shootings inspired by media coverage of other shootings. Now, the history of the Werther effect is quite curious. Goethe's novel, for instance, was a cultural phenomenon at the time. Melancholic men were dressing in blue jackets and yellow pants in emulation of the novel's protagonist, Werther, who was effectively a stand-in for Goethe himself. Some men took their love of the novel one step further by committing suicide with a pistol in the same manner as Werther, who ends his life at the end of the novel after being rejected by the woman he loves. This led to the book being banned in several places. The term Werther effect was first coined by researcher David Phillips in 1974. Further studies in 1985 and 1989 by Phillips and his team found that suicide rates as well as other accidents increased after a well-publicized suicide. The Werther effect impacts the young and the elderly, but not the middle age. Isn't that something? Those who commit copycat suicides tend to be of a similar age to the original suicide that they're copying. Now, the timeline for a copycat suicide is generally weeks and months, although in the case of a high-profile celebrity suicide, it could be as long as a year. Some of the most famous suicides that caused a spike in the overall suicide, suicide rate include Marilyn Monroe. That August had about 200 suicides, more than was typical for the month. And Tunisian street vendor Mohamed Bouazizi, whose self-immolation kicked off the Arab Spring. The Netflix series 13 Reasons Why saw a 26% increase in searches for how to commit suicide. An 18% increase in searches for commit suicide and a 9% increase in searches for how to kill yourself. The teen suicide rate itself spiked after the release of the show. Now, the Werther effect for mass shootings was found to be 13 weeks in a study conducted by Arizona State University and Northeastern Illinois University. For his part, Phillips mostly blamed the media. He believed that people who were having a hard time felt that in some way they had been given permission to end their life by a high-profile suicide. He compared this with similar studies about other risk-taking behaviors like taking drugs. People were more likely to engage in such activities if someone else had done so first. But in the case of mass shooting, potential shooters are not just given a sick kind of permission they're also given a script from which to follow, a ready-made game plan that they can copy and tweak to best fit their purposes. The shooter in El Paso, Texas, for instance, directly referenced the manifesto of the Christchurch mosque shooter in New Zealand. Suicides due to the Werther effect, in addition to being similar with regard to age group, were also similar with regard to method. Now, this is important to remember when considering those mass shootings, which are, in effect, a highly dramatic form of suicide. Some shooters seek to get out alive, but for many, the intended effect is being killed by police in the act of shooting other people. Curiously, the Werther effect is not an in- inevitability, but, re- but largely a function of how the media reports on suicide, the suicide in question. For example, there were fears that the suicide of Kurt Cobain would lead to a rash of suicides. However, in the media coverage of Cobain's death, The focus was primarily on the need for mental health care and the suffering of his family due to his suicide. The result there being that there was actually a decrease in the suicide rate around the time of his death. Now, the United States is a bit anomalous when it comes to coverage of suicide in that it has no professional code on how suicides should be covered. 
Norway forbids publicizing suicide in any way in its media, while other countries have a much more moderate but sensible approach. For example, in the United Kingdom, journalistic practice is not to uh, is to not romanticize the death, use lurid photos or use the word suicide anywhere in a headline. Not only does the United States not have rules against celebrating or glamorizing suicide, either as an industry standard journalistic practice or by government fiat. But the United States has a lurid fascination with suicide in general, as well as suicide by cop and its close cousin, the mass shooting. By the way, there's an equally lurid motto for this principle in the American media. If it bleeds, it leads. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm sharing with you an article from Ammo.com, If It Bleeds, It Leads, How the Media Actually Profits From and Helps Perpetuate Mass Shootings. And one of the things that, uh, that we talk about here is how other media in other places in the world tend to minimize these things. Now, you may call it censorship. I don't know if that's what I would call it. If it was being mandated by government, then yes, it's censorship. If media outlets say we choose not to uh, make this person famous, I think that's something entirely different. For instance, in the coverage of the New Zealand media uh, of Brendan uh, Brenton Tarrant, he was the Christchurch mosque shooter. They blurred his face out in all media coverage. And the government of New Zealand requested that other countries not show footage from the shooting, which was actually live streamed. While the jailing of no less than eight people who shared the shooter's video is an extreme reaction that infringes upon freedom of speech and free exchange of ideas, it does show just how far New Zealand was ready to go to prevent any glorification of the shooter. Now, the media does this for two reasons. As far as if it bleeds, it leads. Newspapers and other other media are businesses, and they do what it takes to create the greatest profits. But there's another more cynical and sinister reason that can be credibly put forward. The American media has a left-wing political agenda. And part of that agenda is the wholesale banning and confiscation of private firearms. Mass shootings are, in terms of the sheer number of deaths, a blip on the radar. The euphemism gun violence is often used to mask this, which lumps murders and suicides into the same statistic. So while suicides are, you know, undoubtedly tragic, they're not what you think of when you hear the term gun violence. All told, there were 11,004 gun homicides in 2016, which sounds like a lot until you get some context. 34,436 died of car crashes in the United States that same year. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson came under fire for pointing this out. Not only do gun deaths not amount to a lot in the grand scheme of things, but mass shootings are even less. 
In fact, what counts as a mass shooting is kind of a political game that deliberately excludes mass shootings. So you have outlets like Vox or Mother Jones or the Washington Post and Congressional Research Service all keeping detailed records of mass shootings. Each one of these deliberately excludes gang violence in their tallies. For context, a total of 888 people have died in mass shootings since 1982. That is a total of 1% of all gun deaths, approximately two-thirds of which are suicides. In 2017 alone, police killed 1,189 people. Americans should be concerned about mass shootings and any other topic where public policy might be able to reduce the numbers of death. Or the number of deaths, rather. But Mark Manson and others have discussed how mass shootings are not only something virtually every American doesn't have to worry about, but panicking and virtually boosting the incidents may actually be creating more of them along the same lines as the Werther effect. Sam Harris has discussed how new legislation is probably not the answer, but a different view of public social violence is. So it's worth noting that terrorism, like the intended effect of a mass shooting, is attention and fear. When society reacts, reacts hysterically to mass shootings with no proportion, it plays into the hands of an agenda of the mass media as well as the intended shooter. Now, the Werther effect has some analog with mass shootings. That's pretty tough to dispute. First, mass shootings are largely a product of the post-1968 world. In other words, the world after gun control. What's more, shooters have studied the actions of other shooters to understand how to commit their crimes. FBI Director James Comey, at the time, currently uh, or certainly believed that media predictions of mass shooters contributed to the phenomenon in the United States. Following the Orlando shooting, he said, You will notice that I am not using the killer's name, and I will try not to do that. Part of what motivates sick people to do this kind of thing is some twisted notion of fame or glory. I don't want to be a part of that for the sake of the victims and their families so that other twisted minds don't think that this is a path to fame and recognition. More than simply a desire to see these shootings not reported, the FBI is actively investigating potential copycat criminals in the wake of mass shootings like the ones that took place in Dayton and El Paso. A study conducted by Mother Jones located no fewer than 74 copycat killings, either attempted or executed, of the 1999 Columbine shooting alone. The casualty toll of these attacks included 89 deaths, 126 injuries, and nine suicides. Now, there's more than just circumstantial evidence to suggest that there's a Werther effect for mass shootings. In fact, this has been studied. The National Institute of Health produced a meta-study of mass shootings that concluded what most people already suspect, that there's an, an imitative effect. It's not that mass shootings are contagious as such. Contagion is something belonging to the world of epidemiology and virology, not psychology. It's that mass shooters tend to imitate one another. And where do they get the information to imitate one another? Well, the National Institute of Health hedges a bit on whether or not mass shootings are contagious in the same way that other violent and dangerous behaviors are. But it's very clear that the media plays a role in disseminating the information about how to commit a mass shooting. Gangbangers might observe how to commit a mass shooting firsthand, but we know of no mass shooter in a non-gang related sense who witnessed a mass shooting personally and then used that knowledge to commit his own. On the contrary, they learn what they know about mass shootings from the media. 
So what's perhaps most interesting on the NIH study is that it found it didn't matter if the portrayal of a mass shooting was even factual or realistic to be an influence on a mass shooter. Even merely describing the behavior of a shooter had the effect of influencing later shooters. The shooter specifically called out the media's portrayal of mass shooters, however. They cite the reporting the report, rather, uh, called out that portrayal, citing the reporting ad nauseum of the personal life details of the shooter, his crimes, and even the manifesto, an increasingly de rigor part of any mass shooting, and that have an imitative effect on future mass shooters. So the point here is government censorship need not be the answer. Consumer pressure, as well as a voluntary industry-wide set of standards, could literally save lives. Consider the portrayal of mass shooters in the media. The very act of being the obsession of the news and social media is a sort of social status attractive to the type of person flirting with the idea of being a mass shooter. The life story of a mass shooter can provide a point of resonance and relatability as similar criminals tend to fit a similar profile. The portrayal of shooters wielding guns or even looking menacing in photographs projects an aura of danger and toughness that can be attractive to those hanging on the edge. Manifestos can inspire further action, especially if one of the goals of the manifesto is to create terror and panic. Huh, mission accomplished. Detailed reports of what happened can provide a sort of instruction manual for future shooters. All of this combined provides a very powerful and attractive cocktail enticing further mass shootings. Note that the suggestion here is not to ban the reporting of mass shootings. See, that would also be a mistake. The public has a right to be informed of significant events, and mass shootings are no exception. However, the manner in which mass shootings are reported on, that's the problem. The emphasis on the personal narrative of the shooter, the views that motivated him to commit the crime, the gory details of his dubious success, they're what's at issue. And the report from the National Institute of Health is unambiguous in its belief that a change in media policy could very well directly lead to a decrease in mass shootings in the United States. Here's how they said it. If the manner with which the media, legacy, new, social, report a mass shooting event plays a role in promoting further mass shootings, changing these reporting methods could decrease imitation. Now, the FBI has specifically requested the media stop naming mass shooters, but apparently this plea has fallen on deaf ears thus far. There are likewise alternatives with regard to the portrayal of mass shooters in the media beyond tactics like withholding their names or blurring their faces. For example, mass shooters are often treated as dangerous, powerful men. This makes mass shooting attractive to a certain unstable psychological profile. On the other hand, shootings could just as easily be portrayed as the shameful act of a cowardly individual. Coverage could likewise emphasize punishment in those cases where the shooter is apprehended alive. See, a big contributing factor in the viral spread of mass shootings isn't just the increased role of social media in how people get their news. It's also the decline of a centralized news media. And while this certainly has a number of positive attributes, most people reading this says will probably get a significant portion of their news from alternative or independent news media sources. It also has its downside. For example, the legacy media no longer relies on subscribers for the lion's share of their revenue. They get money from page clicks on the Internet which are then pitched to advertisers as a symbol of their overall strength as an advertising medium. Interesting. I don't know. I think there may be something to it. I don't want the government dictating, well, this is what the media has to do. 
but I think it's kind of wise to back away from the idea that we're going to make this guy famous and we're going to, you know, blow this up and make it bigger than life. We have that uh, availability bias where if we can recall something easily, we tend to think, well, it's, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But that's not the case, even though we're being led to believe mass shootings are constantly taking place. going to shift gears in this next segment of Loving Liberty. I want to talk about elevators. Maybe it's just because I've had the opportunity in the last couple of years to do a little bit of traveling and stay in some different places, including some high-rise hotels and the like. And, and I'm fascinated. I'm absolutely fascinated by how elevators work. And there's a terrific article in Popular Mechanics about the hidden science of elevators. And I'm going to share just a couple of excerpts here. In the interest of the next time you go to push the button, and maybe you hit push it over and over, come on, hurry up, hurry up, get here. Um, How does the elevator car know when to come? And which car, you know, will, will take your request to be picked up? So the article says you walk to the elevator, you hit the up button, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. There's really a good reason the lift keeps rising away from you. And it's not karmic payback for never returning your neighbor's pruning shears. With every press of the button, we've given our elevator a doozy of a computational challenge. The elevator system has to decide which car to send for you and when. It has to choose whether to go up from the fifth floor to collect these people on the seventh before coming down to the lobby to answer your call. It has to consider who's been waiting longer. And which of the many paths is the most efficient and least painful for everybody? Elevator traffic is an elaborate, delicate dance. And once you see the steps, you can't help but tip your hat to the engineers who choreograph it all. But elevator routing wasn't always so complex. See, the earliest electric elevators were controlled by human operators. An attendant standing inside would drive the lift up and down with a throttle of sorts, stopping wherever he or a dispatcher saw a waiting passenger. But humans proved to be clumsy expensive and prone to going on strike. So by the 1950s, electrical switches took over. Now, the elevators, for them to direct themselves, meant that engineers had to spell out rules for when to go where. And the simplest method was for the elevators to shuttle back and forth between predefined floors at scheduled interviews, kind of like taking a bus. If you waited for the 310 car up to the 10th floor and then found your way from there. But this, of course, was grossly inefficient. During the busy times of the day, the elevator cabs would waste everybody's time sitting at a floor until their scheduled departure. During off-peak hours, they'd make pointless, empty trips. Well, by 1965, Lyft engineers settled on the model we all know and love and sometimes hate. Passengers push buttons to call elevators, and the elevators respond to these requests. But here it gets tricky. As requests to different parts of a building pile up, how does the elevator decide where to go? Believe it or not, there's a pain index. So if you're wondering, what is the perfect elevator system? Does it serve the person who's been waiting the longest? Does it just go to whoever's the closest? Where does it make the compromise between speedy service and keeping energy usage down? 
See, elevator engineers have to grapple with all of these questions, and none of them are as simple as they seem. Clearly, an elevator should try to reduce travel time, but how should it prioritize your time? If you wait a minute instead of 20 seconds for a car to come, is that three times as bad or perhaps six or even nine times worse? See, even the most basic of these goals isn't a given. Sometimes it's actually better to make a passenger's ride longer. Imagine two scenarios. One in which your elevator takes 10 seconds to arrive and then another one and then another minute to reach your destination. Or consider the option where each portion takes just 30 seconds. Many people find waiting so painful they'd prefer the first option. At least I'm on the elevator, even though it's going to take longer to get where I'm going. Accordingly, some elevators optimize not for time, but for kind of a customized pain index in which the computer system weighs the awfulness of each kind of delay. Further complicating matters are an elevator's many constraints. It has physical limits on its speed, and it only has a second or two to choose its next move. But it also shouldn't do anything that will seriously tick off the passengers, like bypassing someone's desired floor without stopping, which is just asking for a fist in the control panel. A good system will balance all of these goals and worries even when you needed to be upstairs 10 minutes ago. Now, the earliest and simplest reasonable approach to elevator dispatching is still surprisingly common. It's known as collective control or the elevator algorithm. And it consists of two rules. As long as there's someone inside or ahead of the elevator who wants to go in the current direction, keep heading in that direction. Once the elevator has exhausted the request in its current direction, switch directions, uh, wait, switch directions if there's a request in the other direction. Otherwise, it's supposed to just stop and wait for a call. That's why your typical elevator bay has call buttons for up and down. So the car that's already heading skyward can stop and collect anybody who's going up. Now, this policy doesn't account for most of the factors mentioned earlier, but it's not a bad place to start. The elevator algorithm is easy to follow and fairly energy efficient, and everyone gets an elevator within one round trip. And, of course, the very same algorithm controls the read and write head on many hard drives. Small office and apartment buildings who don't need to squeeze every bit of efficiency out of their elevators tend to use this simple approach. But in larger buildings, though, collective control starts to cause problems. The elevator services the middle floors each time it passes by, but it's never going to stop by the basement on the way to floor 7. So the wait at the very top and very bottom, the areas most in need of elevators, can be a nightmare. More importantly, large buildings usually have banks of elevators, not just one. So if each one follows the elevator algorithm, then under heavy traffic, elevators start leapfrogging each other a few floors at a time. And they bunch up in the middle of the building, potentially even serving the same calls, twice. So to handle these larger setups, engineers developed a slew of tricks. Just like having the lifts talking to each other, uh, that can actually go a long way. So if car one is headed up, car two can take care of a lobby request. Furthermore, lifts can be assigned to specific clusters of doors. You may have seen elevators hanging out in a lobby, doors wide open. This is the parking strategy, where idle elevators return to a commonly requested floor. Thanks to traffic prediction and real-time monitoring, elevators can switch between strategies to adapt to the morning or close-of-business rush. Fascinating stuff. I'm thinking back to uh, a couple of years ago when I was in Vegas and covering the Bundy trial. Um, I was staying at one of the hotels down on the north end of the Strip. And uh, one morning, I think I was staying on the 33rd floor, I got up. And was headed down to, to go to court, to walk over to the courthouse. 
And as I jumped in the elevator, you know, it, there were people from a couple of floors above me. I don't know how tall the hotel is. I think it's maybe a 40-story hotel. But I was up near the top. And I got on the elevator and was surprised. There's already people on here. And then as we went down, it was just, I guess, the time of day. This was the morning rush. We stopped about every other floor and more people would get on. Now, you can imagine it got pretty full pretty quick. By the time we were down to about the 20th floor, um, we were packed. And still, everybody would watch as that elevator would stop about every other floor. And, and it, it got to the point where the people who were standing there who had called for the elevator. I mean, we're jammed in there like sardines. It is just tight. And you'd see the door open and the people standing outside the elevator, they'd be all anticipating, oh, finally, the elevator's here. And they'd look inside and just go, oh, crap. And you could just see their faces fall like, oh, geez, this is going to take a while because there was no room for them. The door would close and we'd go on. And after this happened like three or four times, I know this sounds terrible, but um, you'd see the door open and you'd see the look of disappointment or sometimes anger on their face. And we all started laughing. I mean, we weren't trying to be cruel, but it was just, it was, it was getting so predictable. Every time that door would open, you just see somebody just, oh man. And we'd start laughing. <sighs> I still kind of feel bad about that. Cause I'm sure some people felt like maybe we were laughing at him, but it was just like, we knew what the reaction was going to be. Okay. Okay. We made it another couple floors. No, we're going to stop again. Here it comes. The door opens. Oh man. <laughs> and away we went. Took a long time to get down to the lobby. But at least we had a little bit of fun. And I, and I would like to think in, in our, our moment of camaraderie, even though it was at somebody else's expense, we were, we were still trying to make the best of a bad situation. But yeah, the, the whole stacking up, it's crazy. The kind of complexity they have to work with is, is just nuts. So I'll have this posted in the show notes a little bit later, but it's an article from Popular Mechanics, The Hidden Science of Elevators. I had no idea there was so much going on. With all these strategy options, the engineers have to face this problem of how do we choose the best algorithm? And you know, one of the most successful approaches has been to let a computer decide. Using machine learning techniques, engineers can specify what success looks like, and then they can just let the elevator controller experiment on its own in simulation. At each moment, the system inspects the state of each simulated elevator and the uh, parameters of each outstanding request. It decides what to do, it measures the results, and the software eventually learns a policy for each combination of factors. And with these more sophisticated policies, even the people who built the software say they don't know why it's doing what it's doing. All right, so the next time you go to punch that button and you're waiting for the elevator car, you're going to have a much better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes as you wait for your ride to arrive. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.